Welcome and shalom from Jerusalem to everyone. Uh, we're glad to have you here on the ICEJ's weekly webinar coming to you from the headquarters of the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem. And as we are moving towards uh, the Jewish High Holidays in just a couple weeks, uh, we've been uh, we're starting a series here. We actually started it last week uh, with today's speaker uh, giving insights into the significance of Rosh Hodesh, the the new moon festival in biblical tradition. And uh, today we're going to look at Rosh Hashanah. Uh, the Jewish New Year, uh, actually it's biblical setting and context. It's, I don't think it's really called Rosh Hashanah, but we have uh, my colleague here at the Christian Embassy, Dr. Mumer Kalos. He's our Vice President for International Relations. And uh, I know from uh, my first visits to, to meet him and to see his work in the Czech Republic, visiting the lovely city of Prague, I noted from the start, uh, Mormir has a real uh, uh, heart and depth of understanding in Hebraic teaching, understanding biblical Hebrew, the Hebraic context heritage uh, of both the Old and New Testaments, the Tanakh and the Red Hadashah. And I think we're going to get a real taste of that today, talking about Rosh Hashanah, the start of the uh, Jewish high holidays each fall, followed by Yom Kippur. Jurgen Bueller um, will cover that, our, our Dr. Bueller, our president, cover that next week. And then I'll talk about Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's all connected. And uh, Mormir, you can start us off, kick us off. What is the significance of Rosh Hashanah? Well, thank you, David, and thank you for this opportunity. I'd like to greet all our audience, which is still coming in. I see that there are people from the East and from the West, all the way from the Philippines to the United States and anything in between. And I really am glad that this new technology is not so new anymore, but this technology has actually enabled us to have this uh, series of webinars. And uh, this is a very good time to speak about the high holidays which will start in about two weeks with this very day of uh, which is called Rosh Hashanah but it's also called other things and as you said we started already last week uh, about the idea of the new moon and Rosh Chodesh uh, biblically uh, in general and uh, that seminar is uh, still available as a recording on demand so today I would like to look into this uh, holiday called Rosh Hashanah. And as David uh, indicated, you will not find that very name in the Bible itself, but I will explain uh, why is it called Rosh Hashanah. It is also sometimes called the Jewish New Year, and uh, there is a special significance to it, and there is also a biblical name for it. So let's look at that. Uh, the first thing I want to mention is that uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, which means the literally the head of a year, is in fact a special case of a monthly holiday. That's the Rosh Chodesh, that's the head of the month, uh, which uh, comes out every uh, Hebrew month, which is a lunar month. Now, uh, where does it come from? 
in the very beginning, in Genesis 1.14, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs, in Hebrew, otot, and for seasons, which uh, uh, is the Hebrew original moadim, for days and years. And one of these lights is the moon, the other is the sun, and uh, we will find that the most important Jewish holidays are controlled by the moon, the uh, lunar cycle. And uh, how we know it, uh, uh, because they fall at a different time each year uh, when we count according to our uh, civil or solar calendar. Sometimes we also call them movable feasts. And we know the concept from the holiday of Easter, which is uh, a derivation of the Jewish festival of Passover. So uh, the moon serves not only as a sign, but also as a moed. And the word moed uh, is best perhaps translated as appointed time. This is the time which God himself set apart for an appointment with mankind. And uh, if we look uh, at some of these appointment times, we will see how powerful they can be. One of these Moadim is uh, the Passover, which marks not only the exodus from Egypt, but also the uh, uh, sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his uh, death and resurrection. That all happened when the full moon in the spring was on, uh, in the heaven. Then uh, the giving of the Torah to Moses or the giving of the Holy Spirit during Pentecost is also governed by the lunar cycle. And uh, also the, the four uh, holidays about which we are going to speak. So generally the Rosh Chodesh, the new moon, is basically there to determine the beginning of the month. Because then when you know when the first day of the month starts, then you will also be able to count until the full moon, which is the time when both Passover and also the Feast of Tabernacles start. By the way, if you have ever been to the Feast of Tabernacles, we usually started in the years before the COVID at uh, Engedi, and uh, you would uh, be treated to the wonderful scene of the full moon rising up from behind the Moab mountains in Jordan in the east. Now that was not a coincidence, it always, uh, started like that. There was always full moon on the first day of Sukkot because this is how the holiday is defined. It starts when the moon reaches its fullness. Now, this is every Rosh Kodesh, and there is also an aspect uh, which I explained last week that uh, there is a uh, memorial. It's connected to the blowing of the shofar. And uh, the memorial is meant to remember what happened during the month, and it serves as a lesson which we can learn. And as we are going through these uh, new months, month by month, we discover that even as Christians, we have something to learn from the biblical stories. But at Rosh Hashanah, which is the beginning of the seventh month of Tishri, uh, we have an additional special meaning to the whole holiday. It is called, and here we come already to the Bible, it is called the day of the blowing of the trumpet or of the shofar. In Hebrew, it's Yom Truah, and the word Truah really means blowing of the shofar. It is also called 
a day of remembrance, Yom Azikaron. So the remembrance is the prominent theme uh, and the blowing of the shofar is the prominent sign of this holiday. And Rosh Kodesh, uh, the way it is celebrated in uh, the Jewish uh, communities, it is a celebration as every feast. It includes eating and drinking. There is a lot of blowing of the shofar, but it is, uh, I would say, a celebration with mixed feelings. And this is because the blowing of the, of the shofar adds solemn tones to the otherwise joyful celebration. And that is because the Lord is remembered as the judge. In the Jewish tradition, they say the books of life are opening. And it marks the beginning of the 10 Yamim Noraim, the days of awe, which lead up to Yom Kippur. So the, the judgment is on, and there is still the possibility to get amends until the day, the final day of judgment, uh, the day of atonement, which comes 10 days later, which is called Yom Kippur. On Rosh Hashanah, the Lord is also celebrated as the creator of the universe, of heaven and earth. And as I said, as a judge, so this is time to ask for forgiveness, try to learn the lessons from the past, and cry for mercy. And after Yom Kippur, after the 10 days, another five days until the full moon, and then the festival of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles starts, and that in turn, quite in contrast to the previous two, this is the most joyful celebration of all the Jewish festivals. So the first question is, why exactly this month, month of Tishri, is so full of spiritually significant times of appointment, Mu'adim? And uh, also, uh, is this the beginning of the year or not? After all, the Tishri is called the seventh month. So you would normally say, logically, if something starts, it starts on the first month. But Jewish logic is different, so we have a new year which starts in the seventh month. How can we understand that? Well, to understand the whole idea of the Hebrew calendar, we have to go back 2,000 years to the ancient times when uh, the society in Israel was an agricultural one. And uh, in fact, every holiday has both a spiritual element and an agricultural one. For instance, Passover marks the liberation from the slavery of Egypt through the blood of the lamb. That's the spiritual or historical part, but also the first fruits. That's the uh, agricultural element. Shavuot or Pentecost commemorates the giving of the Torah and for us the giving of the Holy Spirit. That's the spiritual part, but also it's the time of the first harvest of barley. Again, agricultural part. And the Feast of Tabernacles for the Jews, uh, historically, they remember how they wandered in boots in the desert. That's the historical part, and that's the reason why they actually built these uh, flimsy boots uh, in which they are uh, supposed to at least eat and sometimes even sleep. But also, Sukkot is the time of the ingathering, the final harvest, ingathering of everything that grew and ripened during the long, hot summer in Israel. And according to this agricultural calendar, the reason why the year begins in Tishri is that the harvest is over, the summer is almost over, 
And this is the month, the time when the rainy season should begin. And the rainy season is something which was at that time quite important. It was the period which determined the fate of the entire society, of the entire country for the next year. If the rains, the, the winter rains failed to come, the nation faced drought. And in ancient times, even wars would break out as nations struggled over limited resources. And uh, even today, uh, even though uh, technology has mitigated some of this, we still have not uh, gained control over the climate. There's a lot of talk about climate change. We just had a severe drought in Europe this year. So it is still relevant even today for our modern societies. All the more, it was a matter of life and death for the ancient peoples in the Middle East. And so the message here is, we are completely dependent on God and his sovereignty. We do not have control over the future, but God has. And therefore, this is a good time to repent, to return to the Lord with all our hearts and all our minds. And that is, is, is exactly the message of the month of Tishri and of the whole four holidays. The Bible sets a special month of appointed times before the new agricultural season starts, before the rainy season starts. And uh, the reason for all these special times where people should focus on God, the harvest is over, now it's time to focus on God and to reaffirm the faith and acknowledge that the Lord is the sole force behind the coming season and he will control and determine our faith. I think even in our modern societies where there is a lot of confusion, uh, we can do that uh, to make a contrast. We do not look to nature, natural forces. We do not worship Mother Earth, or we do not let the different theories of climate change control us and our policies. We just put our trust in God. And who decides how the next year will look like, and in particular, how the rainy season will unfold. So in this month of Tishri, when people start praying about the coming rainy season, they become acutely aware of their dependency on God. Again, God appears as judge, and this idea sets the tone for the whole month. It is about life and death. The idea of dependency of God and the trust in him permeates the whole season. The main theme of Sukkot is actually to remember that God protected the Israelites on their way from Egypt, yeah. even though they did have had nothing, but they were able to walk in the desert and they had all the provision they needed. And this is why, as I said already, people are in the Jewish tradition commanded to live in the boots, these uh, flimsy structures, uh, in order to be exposed to the elements and uh, the message would be hammered home to them that they should trust in God rather than man-made protection. And here's the lesson for us as well. Even we cannot rely on our money, on our real estate, even on our own health or on our skills. And there's a lot of shaking going on in 
uh, this time in the world. So this is a good time to remember that it's only God that we can trust and we can rely on. And he is faithful. Hallelujah. So that was the introduction. And now I would like to talk more about the festival of Rosh Hashanah itself. And uh, as I promised, look at the scripture where we can actually find it. Uh, the Bible doesn't call it New Year. It's just referred to as the first day of the seventh month. And uh, the only commandment which is connected to that is to refrain from work and blow the trumpet or the shofar. Uh, we can read it in Numbers 29, verses 1 and 2. Numbers 29, 1 and 2. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. It's like Shabbat. It's like a holiday. You shall do no customary work. For you, it is a day of blowing the shofar. In Hebrew, Yom Truah. You shall offer a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord, and so forth and so forth. There's a parallel passage in Leviticus 23 from verse 23, where all the feasts are defined. Leviticus 23, 23. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest. Again, it's equal to a Shabbat. A memorial of blowing of shofar. The Hebrew here is zikron truah, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work in it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So if we combine the two definitions, Yom Truah and Zichron Truah. The common word is Truah, that's the blowing of the shofar. And the one aspect is just the, the, the Yom, the day, uh, the holiday, and the other is the Zichron, Zikaron, or memorial. Uh, I found an interesting piece uh, by the uh, medieval Jewish scholar Maimonides, uh, or Rambam, who laws in one of his uh, tractates, although the blowing of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah is a law which is issued without any accompanying reason, the Hebrews call it a chok, uh, simply a law without explanation, there is also a hint of meaning, they call it a remez, uh, as if it were saying, awake sleeping ones from your slumber, and those napping arise from your nap. Examine your actions and return sincerely to God and remember your creator. So he says, actually, he makes this connection that the blowing of the shofar is to be understood as a wake-up call and a call to repentance. And we can find an interesting parallel in the New Testament. When Paul uh, writes to Ephesians, he uses a very similar language. And Paul, of course, uh, lived by more than a thousand years earlier than Maimonides, so different, difficult to say who copied it from whom. But what Paul says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you life. And um, I think it's good to read the whole paragraph. It's in Ephesians 5. So I'm reading from verse 8 to 14, Ephesians 5, 8 to 14. Paul says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, 
but the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, but whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So we see that the context here is repentance, and it is the sound of the shofar, which is saying, awake from your slumber, cast away darkness, and walk in light. So when we hear the blowing of the shofar, and if we live in Israel, we are going to hear more and more of it as the day approaches, and on the day of the trumpets, that's the climax, it is a message of calling people to repentance and walking in light. And light also is an important theme at this season. So uh, that's one other thing that uh, I found in, in the scriptures, which is connected to the shofar. We often hear in worship songs, uh, this phrase, blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. That is Psalm 89, 15. And uh, the, the joyful sound is usually, you know, meant to be some nice melody, a good band playing, good worship. But the, the Hebrew for joyful sound is actually the sound of Troah or the sound of the shofar blowing. So in other words, there is blessing when we hear the call of the shofar, when we hear the call for repentance. And the result is that we will walk in light. We will walk in the light of his countenance. And this is exactly what John says in 1 John 1. 1 John 1 from verse 5, we read, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the sound of the shofar, the sound of Truah is a wake up call. It is inviting us to leave darkness and walk in his light. We were once darkness, but now we are light and should walk as children of light. So we can use this opportunity as Christians and ask God to show us if there are areas in which we still walk in darkness and need to repent. And repentance in Hebrew, the word is shuva, which literally means return, come back, change the direction, turn around. So that is the exhortation of the shofar. Another aspect of it is, as the Jewish sages say, uh, many laws which uh, uh, concern the blowing of the shofar are derived from the laws of the Jubilee year. And that idea is based on Leviticus 25, verses 8 and 9. Leviticus 25, 8 and 9, and I'm reading... And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. 
Then you shall cause the shofar of the Jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall make the shofar to sound throughout all your land. Once in 50 years, all land was supposed to be returned to the family that originally inherited it. Slaves went free. And that declaration of freedom, again, was connected to the call of the shofar. It's called the shofar blast of the jubilee, a signal for freedom. And uh, again, we spoke about repentance. So what's the relation between repentance and freedom? It's evident. When we repent, the power of sin is broken, and we enter in true freedom. As Jesus said in John 8, verse 32, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. God's word has the power to make us free from any bondage. And this is actually a very Jewish concept. The whole history of the Jewish people can be seen as struggle for freedom. God freed them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai, where he gave them his word which has this power to set free. And ultimately the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus did what we could never do in our own strength, but now we can experience his liberating power. Because Jesus says, when the son sets you free, you are free indeed. It's a very powerful message of freedom. And Jesus himself referenced the Jubilee when he introduced his ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth. And when he stood up to quote from the prophets, to read from the prophets, he took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and quoted from chapter 61. We have the story in Luke chapter 4, uh, where he said from verse 18, Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the jubilee year, the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus identified his ministry with the Jubilee year, the year of setting the captives free, the year of freedom. And that freedom is being signaled by the blast of the shofar. So again, when we hear the shofar, it's not only a call for repentance, but it is also a signal that there is freedom in Jesus who has paid the price in full. Praise God. Another aspect of the shofar blowing is uh, related to the judgment, as I already indicated. The judgment, and we believe that it uh, relates to the last days and also to the restoration and regathering of Israel. So the, the final judgment and the restoration of Israel are uh, connected. Uh, uh, proof text from Zechariah chapter 9 Verse 9 and then verse 14, Zechariah 9. It's a famous 
verse uh, often quoted by Christians, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fall of a donkey. And then verse 14, Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the shofar, and go with whirlwinds from the south. So the blowing of the shofar here signals the coming of the Lord, the coming of the king, and also the salvation of Israel. He comes to Jerusalem. Another scripture in Isaiah 27, verses 12 and 13. Isaiah 27, 12. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So we have the ingathering of the Jewish people. So it shall be in that day, the great shofar will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy month of Jerusalem. So first of all, again, the great shofar is blown when the children of God are being regathered to their ancient homeland. And then there is this strange mentioning of Assyria and Egypt, which may remind some of us to another portion of Isaiah in chapter 19. And uh, what is now called as the Isaiah 19 highway between Egypt and Assyria. And that vision culminates in verses 23 to 25. Isaiah 19, 23 to 25. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come to Egypt, and the Egyptian to Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three, with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in their midst, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. And in a previous verse in Isaiah 27, we find a kind of a confirmation. It also says that they will come from Assyria and from Egypt and worship the Lord at Jerusalem. And these two regions are again specifically mentioned with the promise of salvation in the midst of Jerusalem, in the midst of judgment. And that will happen at the time of the regathering of the sons of Israel. So again, restoration of Israel, judgment of the nation, and even blessing to the neighboring nations and the coming of the king, this is all intertwined and it is all also connected by the blowing of the shofar. And finally, there are some New Testament scriptures which uh, also mention the blowing of the trumpet. And I checked the translation of the New Testament into Hebrew. Uh, so these two uh, scriptures that I'm going to quote, they are actually translated into Hebrew as trua, which is the blowing of the shofar, the sound of the shofar. The first of them is 1 Thessalonians verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. First Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an arch 
archangel. And with the trumpet of God, here is the truah, the shofar of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It is indeed a great source of comfort, isn't it? And again, this seminal event is inaugurated by the sound of God's shofar. And the final Revelation 11.15, Revelation 11.15, that's uh, the, the sounds of the angels. When the seven angels sounded, and the Hebrew translation of this is takaba shofar. So he put up this special sound of the shofar, this takaba sound of the shofar. And, and upon that, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. If that is not a declaration of complete ultimate victory, then I don't know what is. And that is inaugurated by the sound of the shofar. So when Rosh Hashanah comes in two weeks, and uh, we are going to hear the sound of the shofar, uh, we are encouraged to blow it as well. It's uh, nothing that Christians couldn't be doing. Let's do it as a prophetic sign, as a sign of the final victory, as the call to repentance, but also as the sign of Jesus's freedom and victory. And the day will come when that will become manifest. To conclude, there is another aspect of Rosh Hashanah uh, which I really like, and that also comes from the Jewish uh, tradition. You know, if you have listened carefully what I have said so far, it might seem that uh, it's a rather heavy subject. The, the somber atmosphere would prevail when we think about all these things, the great day and the coming judgment and all that. But if you look at the way the Jews celebrate the new year, you will find the Jewish celebrations to be quite joyful. And, uh, you know, uh, sweet uh, food is served and uh, uh, apples dipped in honey are presented. And there's, there are many hints of, uh, you know, wishing one another a, a sweet new year. And, and so it's not so desolate what, uh, as one might perhaps uh, expect. Now, why is that? I would say this is an expression of faith. And uh, here's a, a comment uh, in the tractate Rosh Hashanah in the Talmud, which uh, says that uh, normally, if you are summoned to appear at the court, you're speaking about the judgment, right? You don't know how the outcome will be. So you are somber, uh, you, you dress uh, uh, accordingly and so forth. But with Israel, the Jewish sages say, with Israel, it's different. We dress in white, we eat and drink and are joyful because we know that God is going to do miracles. On the one hand, it is terrible to be judged by God. Yet on the other hand, we know that he is merciful. Therefore, we can rejoice even in the midst of judgment. End of quote from Talmud. But to me, it sounds almost like the words, 
Jesus spoke in Luke 21, 28, when he said, uh, concluding his speech about the final days and the judgment, all that which needs to come, he says, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. It's the expression of faith. We know that our God is merciful and faithful. And as for us Christians, we have actually uh, assurance for the day of judgment. Jesus said in John 5, 22 to 24, something which is important in the context of the judgment of the whole world. John 5, 22 to 24. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So therefore, we can embrace this coming day of trumpets, of the blowing of the shofar with assurance assurance of salvation and joy, because if we are joyful, we show that we actually trust him, that we take his word seriously. And there is also a biblical precedent. In the days of Nehemiah, when the Jewish people were coming back from exile, they were reading the Torah again, they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and the temple, and they assembled on Rosh Hashanah, of all days, to hear the word of God. And listen how they responded when they heard the call for repentance, as I just explained. And listen also to the answer that Nehemiah gave. We find it in Nehemiah chapter 8. I'll first read the first three verses and then verses 9 and 10. So it's Nehemiah 8, 1 and 3, and 9 to 10. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. First day of the seventh month, Rosh Hashanah. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday, before the men and women and those who could understand. I believe that it includes already uh, children from certain age. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And then what happened, Nehemiah who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Uh, that's a wonderful conclusion. I'm sure you have heard this phrase before, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Why? Because it comes from repentance. 
Blessed are the people who know the sound of the shofar. We will walk in light. So let us do it. Let us uh, repent where needed. Let us embrace the freedom that Jesus has brought and abide in him with confidence and joy, expecting his final coming, which will be inaugurated with the big sound of the shofar of God. David? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Mormir. It's excellent. And uh, we've been getting lots of questions and comments uh, in both in the chat room and over in the q and I've been trying to keep up with all of those. And one of them was, uh, you know, there's a lot of scriptures you're citing. We've been putting them there in the chat. Uh, uh, each of these, some of them uh, setting out the full quote as well. But uh, we will uh, release your, um, more of your sermon notes um, in our uh, regular ministry update uh, that goes out by email tomorrow, Friday. Um, it will be the lead uh, commentary there, and it will be posted on our website at www.icej.org. But uh, please make sure you're on our mailing list, our email list. Um, you, you can go to the website, icj.org, and sign up there. But uh, these notes will be available, and I, uh, uh, you did a good job in setting this out already in that, and we appreciate it. It also helps the translators a lot, and I know they appreciate it as well. We've got a good crowd here, good responses coming in. I think this is very, um, uh, it's very interesting the way that you've ended this, that these are days of all, the Jewish people call it Rosh Hashanah, you blow the trumpet, it wakens the soul to into introspection and repentance because you're about to stand in judgment before the Lord. But if you're in right relationship with him, if your faith says that you, you're in, in, in right standing with God, then it is a time to be rejoicing and enter the joy of your salvation, which is the whole process of the, um, the festival of tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. And uh, we just appreciate this introduction to it. But, um, you know, um, there is this notion that the fall feasts are tied, uh, just as the spring feasts are tied to the first coming of the Lord, the fall feasts have this prophetic aspect tied to the second coming of the Lord. Can you say a little more about, especially Rosh Hashanah in connection with it? I know you mentioned it, but I think it's important to yeah. emphasize. Yeah, well, uh, I think it's also connected with the, the question of why the Feast of Tabernacles has never been actually uh, kept by the church. Because yeah. uh, the church has, from the very beginning, from obvious reasons, kept uh, both Passover and Shavuot in the form of Easter or uh, the, the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread, because that's when Jesus was uh, on the cross and died and resurrected. And uh, uh, the Feast of Shavuot, which uh, added another meaning by the Holy Spirit falling on the first disciples. So these were two uh, historic events, which it was good and natural for the church to look back to and to commemorate and celebrate that. But what to do with the fall feast? Because they have not been fulfilled in the same sense yet. And so that's probably, and also because church 
separated from the Jewish roots, from the Hebrew roots. So that uh, resulted in no awareness of its significance. And uh, as I try to say, the seventh month is actually the most heavily loaded month of all the feasts and with those feasts, all the, the messages, the, the prophetic messages. So if we look at that from this perspective and ask the question, what is, what is it that we still expect to happen? That is of course the, the coming of the Lord and uh, the, the coming of uh, the Lord as the judge and uh, the, the, the atonement and then the Sukkot is uh, the time of the great joy. So I would say that the, the blowing of the shofar would probably uh, introduce this, this coming of the Lord, as, as we read in Thessalonians, with the power, with the judgment. And then the after this period, the Feast of Tabernacle is actually uh, also reflected in Revelation as the time when God is tabernacling with people. So this is also, it's a time of great joy when we will be in the presence of God. And after these seven days of Sukkot, there is actually a, the eighth day, the Shmini Atzeret, which is not anymore uh, commemorating anything from the past. It is just pure day of being in the presence of God. It's just man and God tabernacling together. So that's, I believe, the, the prophetic uh, sign of the ultimate end when there will be just us together with God and uh, he will wipe up every tear and, and so forth. Amen. Now, we're also um, uh, getting questions about uh, the video of this teaching. Of course, so many of you are joining us on, on the Zoom uh, platform. Uh, so that you can get the translation into French, Spanish, Portuguese, Thai, and Chinese. But those who, uh, it's also being uh, live streamed on our Facebook page, ICEJ Official. If you go to Facebook and search ICEJ Official, you'll find us there. It'll be there to share with your friends and watch again. And also over on our YouTube channel, uh, if you go to YouTube and then search ICEJ or International Christian Embassy Jerusalem, we have a special channel there with our webinars listed. That should be up within the next uh, hour or two, and you can share that and watch again. Uh, we had a question, um, Moimir, about, uh, you know, why should uh, Christians uh, who are under the blood of Jesus, why should we be uh, interested in these ancient feasts? I think you answered a lot of this, but maybe you just want to address that a little yeah. bit. Well, I want to make it clear that we are not drawing people back under the yoke of the law or, or encouraging them to enter any Jewish traditions, but uh, we're trying to really read the text of the Bible and the understanding of the, the Jewish tradition over the years who have been reading the the Tanakh for many, many centuries, that can help us, but it, never, it, it, it can never be taken alone. We just always have to compare it with the revelation as we have it in the New Testament, which is what I have been doing. I always try to find if there is a parallel with from the New Testament. And uh, we do it because we believe it can enhance our understanding of God's plan 
And uh, the best way I often quote it, uh, the best answer to what extent should we uh, be dealing with this, all the Jewish tradition, is what Ruben Berger once told me, uh, as long as it brings you closer to Jesus, as long as your love for Jesus uh, will be made even greater with all the understanding and appreciation of the, the spectacular plan and how it all fits together, then it's good. Uh, if it should lead you astray to concentrate on some outward things, I would not recommend that. No. I know that uh, there's so many things in the the words and, and actions of Jesus and the apostles that you really can't understand what the true meaning of it is unless you have some background on the culture, the Jewish culture uh, traditions, the Hebraic culture uh, uh, for that. And I think it's also uh, so, so important, especially with Rosh Hashanah, uh, and you made this point that that God does follow appointed times, and these are appointed times. The New Moon Festival, Rosh Hashanah is one of these. You blow the trumpet at a certain time when you see the New Moon, and that then gives you the date for, uh, you know, 14 days later for the... Um, or 15 days later, or for the full moon and Passover and such, but God fulfilled specifically at certain moments the prophetic purposes hidden in the spring feast. Jesus was hanging on the cross. He was examined while the lambs were being examined in the by the priests in the court of the altar up in the temple, and then he was slaughtered when those lambs were being slaughtered for the Passover sacrifice. And the day of Pentecost, it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, it was in the morning when everyone was heading up to the temple to worship, that the Holy Ghost fell on the disciples who were gathered in the upper room following the tradition. They came together to pray because it was a biblical holiday commanded by Moses. And if they hadn't been following it, they wouldn't have been there together in that room and the church born in that incredible way that it was. And I believe the fall feast will have that sort of precise fulfillment that when Paul says at the last trump or trumpet, he's talking about the last blowing of the uh, Rosh Hashanah a ram's horn or shofar in this present age, this present di dispensation, which is tied to the resurrection and the coming of the Lord. It's really, uh, you know, it really opens your understanding about this. Yeah. And I would say it would have been more normal, I would say, had the church not separated from the Hebrew roots, because some we yeah. are in the age of rediscovering some of that. But actually, uh, it is all grounded in the Bible, and uh, we can also make a distinction between, you know, following teachings of teaching of rabbis in Judaism. That's one thing, but that, that's a stream which separated from Christianity. But we are digging into that good olive tree, the, the old tradition which is in the Bible, and not tradition, just to, to the words of the Bible. And uh, as we can see, many uh, things have been forgotten by the church, and even it adopted foreign uh, uh, festivals Custom. or foreign customs uh, <laughs> on the basis of, of the, the countries where they lived. So we're actually going back to the origin. 
you know, and it's to enrich uh, your understanding and your faith in God. It's not to add, it doesn't add any one ounce of more to your righteousness. It's right. the blood of Jesus that gives us right standing before oh. God. But look, we're getting ready for the Feast of Tabernacles, which is Gentile Christians from all around the world. Uh, keeping what may seem to be some Jewish festival, but it's the one that the Gentiles were also invited to come up with the Jewish people to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so we really want people to understand this and start getting into uh, this practice of, of uh, really it's, it's an, uh, a way to build your anticipation and expectation of the coming of the Lord. And it's the vision of Zechariah 14, 16, that all nations will one day celebrate this feast and, and worship the king here in Jerusalem and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And we're already forerunners doing that. But it's good to understand that whole process of awakening introspection, uh, that the whole fall holidays uh, from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur to Tabernacles is one long, uh, one uh, unit or season that we go through and prepare our hearts for it. And we appreciate this launch. We're going to have uh, uh, Dr. Jurgen Bueller back next week. Uh, I see we have uh, almost 300 here on the Zoom platform right now. I know there's others joining us by Facebook and by uh, um, YouTube. Please tell your friends, join us next week for part two of this series. It's going to be the significance of Yom Kippur. You're going to pick up with that. And then the following week, uh, I'll take up the whole uh, meaning, the significance of the Feast of Tabernacles. But Mormir, thank you for really setting the stage here, building such a good foundation of the significance of Rosh Hashanah. God bless you.